Of course, I was like uh, worried because I thought that I could easily fall into some kind of misery porn, you know. And I said, well, how can I do to avoid this? And I thought I don't only have to tell those stories, but try to understand why they uh, happen. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, it's one of the planet's oldest problems, world hunger, a topic that author Martin Caparros is tackling in his newly released book in English, El Hambre, Hunger. Hunger is a persistent and brutal problem the world lives with every day. There are over 800 million starving people on the planet. More than 50 countries are suffering from serious or alarming levels of hunger. We want to take a closer look at the underlying causes of this food insecurity worldwide. Temperatures are becoming higher and they're becoming more variable. But it's not just affecting agriculture. It's also affecting the livelihoods of people that depend on it for their food and their income. Hunger is going up both the number of hungry people and the percentage. Yet the world produces enough food to feed the entire human population one and a half times over. In his book, Hunger, award-winning author Martin Caparros travels the globe in search of an answer to food insecurity. Originally from Argentina, Martin Caparros is a prolific essayist, novelist, and international journalist. He's published dozens of books, both novels and works of nonfiction. His book, Hunger, is already an international bestseller in Latin America, Spain, France, Germany, Scandinavia, and now, for the first time, it's being published in English. In his book, Martin Caparros goes in search of why, in the 21st century, so many of the world's inhabitants still go hungry daily. Each chapter of Hunger focuses on one specific location. He traveled to Niger, India, Bangladesh, the U.S., Madagascar, South Sudan, and finally back home to Argentina. Caparros argues that our inability to eliminate world hunger is not a result of a lack of resources, but rather who controls them. I sat down with Martin to talk about his reporting, the causes and effects of hunger, and our responsibility to help. Martin Caparros, welcome to Latino USA. Thank you, Maria. So, Martin, I actually want to know a little bit more about you. So, tell me about when you decided that you wanted to become a journalist. It was in Argentina, where I grew up in Buenos Aires. I was working in a newspaper. I was 16 years old. I had just finished my high school. I wanted to become a photographer. And at that time, journalists started to work that way. I mean, there was not a journalism schools and stuff like that. You just began to work. Some Saturday, February the 16th, 1974. Oh my God, wait, wait. <laughs> no one has ever said that the exact date <laughs> when you knew you wanted to become a journalist. Yeah, well, there's always a first. What happened? The press room was severely understaffed. A guy there asked me if I could help him by writing this uh, news about the finding of the left foot of a Japanese mountaineer that lost it 10 years before. It's not the news that the world was waiting for. But, uh, well, I said yes, because I used to write some poetry as any teenager would. 
I wrote it and it seems that I wrote it all right. And that's how I started to become a journalist. At what point did you realize that what you wanted to do was not write the news of the day, but that you realized that you wanted to go deeper into issues? My story was a bit more twisted. I mean, when I was 18, I had to leave Argentina because of the coup d'etat in, in March 76. So I went to France, I studied history there, and I started to write fiction. And I had already written uh, like three novels when I finally came back to writing journalism. So at that time, I already knew that I wanted to write like more complex and long pieces. And that's what I started to do at the beginning of the 90s. You decide to actually take on the issue of hunger in a massive book in Spanish language where you travel to multiple countries How did you kind of approach your editors and in your own mind to write this massive tome about hunger? I was at that time uh, working for the UN, the United Nations. I had to write reports on different problems in different parts of the world. By doing that, I found that behind every problem that I had to address, like migration or climate change or reproductive health, there was always something lying behind it, that was that most of the people didn't eat enough. Is that what made you become enthralled with the issue of hunger? That hunger was just kind of the forgotten issue? Yeah, a constant and forgotten issue. In all those years writing for the uh, United Nations, hunger didn't seem to be something that they wanted to take care of. At some point I decided that I wanted to try to understand why and what was happening. So I decided to write about that phenomenon that was overlooked when we talked about so many other things. So what you decide to do is that you decide to visit lots of places around the world to speak to people who are what we would call, quote-unquote, food insecure. You actually get very spiritual, and you ask them if they believe in God. Mm -hmm. And if they do... You ask them, why does God let them go hungry? Why these questions? Well, when I ask them about the reasons why they were in poverty and hunger and so, they talked about different gods. Some saying that it was his decision to keep them like that. At some point, I realized that there was almost no atheist hungry person. Mm. I suppose that it was easier to think that there was like a superior power that decided that you were going to be in that situation. But it's revolting to see in which measure God is uh, useful for justify the unjustifiable. And in many cases, keep many people in a situation where they shouldn't be. Mm. Hunger is intertwined with so many other parts of society like corruption, capitalism. But if you're a woman, your chances of being hungry are actually so much higher than if you're a man. It is a question of gender. You wanted to really highlight this. Yeah, I realized that something like that existed because in one side, it's obvious that women are always in the front line of the battle against hunger. It's women who has to take care, usually, of the nourishment of their children 
and who has to go to these places where they can get something to give to their children. When you go to a Doctors Without Borders clinic, you see many children and many women. There is also other thing, much more rooted in some societies, which is the proper gender hunger. In very big societies in China, in India, and places like those, when there is not enough food, is the men who get the few that there is. Women don't eat. I didn't know that it was like that. I was working in China. A guy, he told me that when he was very young, he had three elder sisters, and when they have very little food, the sisters didn't eat in order to allow him to eat. Mm. I told him, then your sisters must have hated you. He said, no, why, why? I said, because you were taking her food. No, that's like that. It's the way it is. Mm. I mean, it was so normal for him that the sisters didn't eat because he had to eat. I started to research and I found that it's a very widely diffused habit in many cultures. It was justified at the beginning by the fact that men were supposed to be the ones who grew food if they didn't eat enough, they couldn't work. But it's not true. I mean, in many of these cultures, you see in the fields women working at the same rhythm than men. Hmm. So one of the things that you uh, talk about is the kind of cliches that people have around the issue of hunger. I remember as a little girl growing up that my mom would say, you have to finish everything that's on your plate because you have to think about the hungry children of Bangladesh. I don't think it's bad to think that this food we are wasting is needed somewhere. You know that we waste lots and lots of food. In Europe, for instance, it's been gauged that between 35 and 45% of the food that circulates here is wasted. But Bangladesh, I think, is a special case. If you ever wondered where your embroidered T-shirts come from, look no further. These women are among the four and a half million Bangladeshi garment workers who make clothes for women. Bangladesh has become the second world producer of textiles, of uh, T-shirts and trousers and everything we use very happily. Because women working in the garment industry accept to work for 25 or $30 a month and they work 12 hours journey, six days a week for this money just because the only alternative to that is hunger. So hunger is a very powerful tool in the hands of their bosses, of their exploiters. On your trip across the world, you went to Chicago, to Buenos Aires, to Niger, and each place is so different. Is there one place that has stuck in your mind? Well, this uh, woman from Niger whom I met in a very poor village. And she started to tell me that first she grinded the mill with a wooden mortar. With that, she uh, does farin. It's a cereal, a very poor cereal. I asked her, do you eat that every day? And she says, well, every day I can. Hmm. I asked her, what would she do if a magician offered her anything she wanted. And she said, a cow. I can milk her, and if I have a little bit more, I can give some milk to my children, and so on and so. And I said, yeah, but I told you he could give you everything you wanted, 
don't you want something else? And he said, two cows. Mm. Then I understood that we were speaking from very different places. That kind of poverty also closes your possibility to wish, I mean, your horizon of desire. I wanted to try to tell something about this world, which is so strange to us, from which we live so, in a way, happily far away, right? So you document how hunger in Niger is a structural problem, and it exists because there are systems at play that prioritize other things instead of making sure that everyone has enough to eat. The land is very dry, very difficult to cultivate. Niger ranks as the fourth poorest country on the planet. Its soil, however, is rich in mineral resources such as uranium. So two companies, one French and one Chinese, that extract all the uranium from Niger. And in the end, with the money, you could build up irrigations and roads to get a, an agriculture going on in that country. So it's not the structures of the ecosystem of the soil, but the structure of international commerce and economy and politics. Coming up on Latino USA, our conversation with author Martin Caparros continues. And next, we go to Chicago. Stay with us. No te vayas. Support for NPR and the following message come from Netflix's Contoto, presenting Brown Love, a new podcast that aims to bring together the best and brightest of Latino Hollywood to get real about the industry and all the things Latinx communities are talking about on your timeline. Each week, the show features a roundtable of Latino actors, including Diane Guerrero from Orange is the New Black and Jessica Marie Garcia from On My Block. New episodes of Brown Love drop every Tuesday. Subscribe now where you listen to podcasts. Hi, this is Felix Contreras from NPR Music's Alt Latino Podcast. As part of our Black History Month coverage, we take a look at the Afro-Latin roots of reggaeton and its rise over the last decade to become one of the most listened to musical genres on the planet. To check it out, download Alt Latino from wherever you get your podcasts. back, and we've been talking with author Martin Caparros about his book, Hunger. When we left off, we were hearing about how the structure of international commerce has had a deep impact on hunger around the world. We're going to continue our conversation now. Now, take me from Niger to the streets of Chicago. What does hunger in Niger have to do with hunger in Chicago? Chicago is the place where they fix the prices of these food commodities all over the world. So when they decide they are speculating because it's a stock market, 
It's so true. It gets traded at the mercantile exchange. The CME is the world's largest and most diverse financial exchange. In 2006, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange transacted over 1.3 billion contracts. When you speculate with corn, it means that a week later, there is a lot of people in some African or Asian or Latin American country not able to buy their tortillas anymore or their bread anymore or whatever they eat because the prices have risen up because of this speculation. Everything is very intertwined and that's the main reason why there is hunger in the world. I mean, we are able to produce enough food for, they say, like 12 billion people. And we are, as we know, seven and a half billion people in this moment. So we are able to feed everyone, but we don't do it because the production of this food is just oriented towards first world markets and not people that need it. One of the things that comes up in your chapter around Chicago you write about something which you call the hunger industry. And you're thinking about Chicago and the fact that this is where commodities are bought and sold and prices are set. Mm -hmm. It's also very political because, you know, Michelle Obama, former first lady, she was all about eating healthy. But her attack on the issue of food and nutrition never took on the food industry. Mm -hmm. Is that part of what happens when you say, look, we could solve this? But there's something that just doesn't want to let us do that. Of course, the food industry is enormously powerful and they need to work the way they work. Their only obligation is to make more money. And when I said that we are able to produce food for 12 billion people, it's because we have ways of producing it, not organic, that can feed everyone. I'm not against Monsanto, let's say, because they have some kinds of producing that are not traditional. I'm against them because they have it just for making profit for them. Mm. Moreover, we are not able to produce organic food for many. Organic food is produced in conditions that make it much more expensive and difficult to do it. You need more ground, you need more water, you need a lot of things. Then they are more expensive and they are more exclusive. It's very nice to have your own tomatoes and to be sure that kind of food that you eat is organically produced, but it doesn't change in the situation of so many people. When people think of Argentina, and specifically when they think of Buenos Aires, it's like a version of a European capital city. And yet when you visit Buenos Aires, you paint this picture of hunger that is really very dramatic. The poor of Buenos Aires that you don't see, they're actually racing for scraps of food. Yeah, well, Buenos Aires, in fact, could be a very nice, attractive city in its center, but it's surrounded by... 10 million people that live in very poor condition. 40% of people in Argentina are below the line of poverty, according to the last statistics. And they try to make a living as they can. One of the things they do is to try to grab food from the garbage. I accompanied some of them when they go to a kind of artificial mountain because it's garbage that accumulates there. And then every day at five o'clock in the afternoon, they are given permission 
to run to the top of that hill where the new garbage has been thrown. They run there just to get the best garbage because that's what they are going to eat. It's really a terrible sight. You want us to read your book and not come away throwing our arms up and saying there's nothing to be done. What is it that each one of us, in terms of our own personal responsibility, has to this issue? This political responsibility comes in terms of trying to do things more or less together. I always think of the example of ecologism. 40-something years ago, the ecologic movement at the time in Paris was very, very small. And now you can't even run for mayor of a little village anywhere without explaining how you're going to save the planet, right? Why couldn't we do the same with hunger? The only evident main reason is that we feel that the ecological threat threatens all of us, while hunger, it always happens to others. But we should uh, be able to make it matter if we get our representatives to be uh, in need of talking about them, because if they don't do it, they were going to be uh, like dismissed. I think that's the only way. Do you want all of us to kind of walk around and be highly aware of it at all times? Is that something that you would hope that we take away? Yeah, of course. I want as many as possible to be aware of the fact that it's an absolute shame that in a world that is able to feed everyone, there is still 800 million people that don't eat enough. If that's not a shame, shame doesn't exist. We have to know it and feel it and resolve to do something about it. Martin Cabarros, thank you so much for your work on hunger and for speaking with me today. Thank you, Maria. Martin Caparros is the author of nearly 30 books. The English edition of his book, Hunger, is out now. This episode was produced by Joanne de Luna and Adriana Tapia and edited by Sofia Palizacar. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Antonia Cerejido, Janice Yamoka, and Alisa Escarce. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our production manager is Natalia Fiedelholz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our interns are Julia Inés Esparza and Julia Rocha. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, I'll see you on all of our social media. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. Funding for Latino USA's coverage of a culture of health is made possible in part by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Latino USA is made possible in part by The Annie E. Casey Foundation creates a brighter future for the nation's children by strengthening families, building greater economic opportunity, and transforming communities. And W.K. Kellogg Foundation, a partner with communities where children come first.